again, uh, John, um, you may or may not remember, I think we finished uh, in that passage last Sunday morning. And uh, it's interesting because some people kind of misinterpret what Jesus is asking, what Jesus is asking Peter. Uh, number one, I think I made mention of the fact that Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And y'all know this. If you were here last Sunday, I am being repetitive. But he uses, Jesus uses the word, Peter, do you love me? He uses the biggest or the, most, the strongest biblical word for Greek for love. Do you agape me? You've heard that word all your life, agape love. That's, that's how the Bible defines God's kind of love. Self-sacrificing, self-emptying love that we're supposed to follow. So Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? <clears throat> agape me. Well, Peter turns around and says, <clears throat> excuse me, you know that I, he doesn't say you know that I agape you, you know that I love you like a brother. He uses the word philos, like Philadelphia, philos, brotherly love. And, and so Peter's response to Jesus was not that I love you with a godly love, I love you like a brother. And then the last time Jesus said it, he says, Peter, do you eat? thing we misinterpret is you know when Jesus says do you love me more than these when I, I think the first time I heard somebody preach on that they were saying that uh, that he was talking about the other disciples do you love me more than these other disciples love me some people would say that but that's not what Jesus was asking was he do you remember if you if you read the whole context of of John chapter 20, remember they had gone, remember what Peter had said? Uh, remember our favorite Wetumpka word or phrase, I'm going a fishing? And remember Peter went back to fishing and so he went to a boat, a boat that, like it was probably his old fishing boat because it was the boat and it's a definite article. So it was a specific boat for a specific purpose. So there's a great chance Peter was going back to his old way of life. That's the implications. So he said, I'm going a fishing, and everybody else with him says, well, we'll go with you. So they all went fishing, and there's a, you know, there's a, and in those days, those boats were big enough to hold six, eight, ten guys. By the way, when you go back to Israel with me, when I do go back to Israel and you go with me, you can go to the Sea of Galilee, you go to Capernaum, uh, and there is a, a boat they found uh, because the water is receding in the Sea of Galilee, and they found this vessel dated in the first century. And I'm not, they're not saying it's Peter's boat because it's a fishing boat from the first century. So it's a boat that looks like, and it's probably the same size of, what Peter and John and James and those guys used when they went fishing. But what Jesus was asking, Peter, do you love me more than your old way of life, more than the fish that you just caught, now think about what Jesus did. He's the one that had him catch the fish. Do you remember that? Remember? Shake your head like this. It helps me out. Remember he said, cast your net on the other side of the boat, right? They hadn't caught anything all night long, and Jesus is the one that gave them the catch. So they catch the 153 fish, drag them in, and so you have the boat, you have the nets, you have the fish, and you have this way of life, which now Peter's remembering I was doing this when Jesus called me. He says, do you love me more than this? And so, folks, all of us, 
face that same question every day. I, I would almost say it's like an, about loving the world when John would write in 1 John of loving the world. You know, if, if the love of the world is in you, then the love of the Father is not. And so obviously for Peter at that moment in his life, he, he had gotten confused about why Christ was resurrected from the dead, probably a little upset that Jesus did not decide to establish an earthly kingdom then. And, and so Peter goes back to his old way of life. And so I have to ask you, I have to ask myself, my own heart, how many of us have gone back to the old way of life and, and the lordship of Christ and discipleship and, and church life and serving Jesus and loving the church is, is what we're, our lives are focused on or is it focused on the, the things of the world? Do you love me? It's a great question. Matter of fact, it's the last question that, that Jesus asked. Do you love me more than these? It's a, great, it's a great question. It's a probing question. It's a haunting question to me. Your Bible's open to uh, Revelation chapter 6, and we are in studying uh, Revelation, trying to do it verse by verse, and we had gone over this two or three weeks ago. As a matter of fact, three weeks ago, we had been in Revelation chapter 6, so I, I do want to return there, but I do want to ask you a question the other day, or, or give you a thought, a little theological thought here. Friday, I, we were going to meet somebody, uh, Diane and I, and uh, we passed by, and it brought back a lot of memories. So I passed by a, a cemetery, <clears throat> a church cemetery, and it reminded me I did a funeral, and this was right when COVID had hit. Uh, this, let's just say it was 1st of March. It's when we had to, the masks were mandated, and I because I can remember the graves, it was just a graveside, but, but I say all this, it was a baby. And, uh, and I know our family has lost, you know, one of our, our daughters, uh, uh, Jonathan's wife, lost a baby, you know, six, seven months old. This, this one was born, and it lived like a few hours. And this family knew me. They had visited here. And so this, this uh, they asked me to do the, the graveside. And... Uh, so I, I did the grave. It was brutal, but anyway, did the graveside. But by the way, and so the question, I, first question I have to ask you is, does the Bible tell us where that child is? Yes, it does. Isn't that, isn't that comforting? The Bible gives us an answer for that, that where is, and I could tell them that, that here's some confident things I know the Bible says is true about where the destiny of a little baby that lived to be eight hours, two days, I forgot how long, that the destiny of this child. Well, I got another question for you. You may have never thought about this, but uh, hey, do you try to follow me with that camera? You just give up, don't you? Yeah, okay. I thought about it. I'm sorry about that. Uh, hey, don't put me on the wide lens because I have trouble with that now. But anyway, uh, um, we believe in a rapture. We believe in a pre-trib Rapture. Some of you may think that's a, that's a joke. There's so many things I could tell you about that, and I'll, I'll mention some of them, but have you ever thought about what's going to happen? I'm just at, this is not what I'm preaching about, but I've been thinking about this all weekend. What happens to little children of parents who are raptured? That's a probing question, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? When... The dead in Christ shall rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain, we call it meet the Lord in the air. Obviously, that's talking about the church, people that are born again, saved, 
bought by the blood of Christ as we just sang, no, whatever term you want to use, saved, born again, a child of God, member of the church, the spiritual church, and we're called up, dead in Christ, rise first, those of us alive are caught up in there. What happens to the five-year-old that belonged to that adult? Parents, what, you know, young children, what, what happens to them? Well, well you, you, you would say that, but how can you say that? What's, so you, you're right, you're right, but how, how can you defend that? How, how can you defend that God would, would rapture? I don't know if you, I, I really haven't thought a lot about this, but it's a probing question. How can you affirm that, that when Christ raptures everybody who is saved, if there are children that are not of the age of belief, you know what I'm talking about, we call it the age of accountability, that's really not a good term, Will those children go with the parents? And, and it's pretty, pretty indicative all through the Old and New Testament that yes, they will. So all through the scriptures, I'll give you a couple. And the first one is not the best example, but even when God flooded the world in judgment, the, even though Noah's children were old, the children went with the parents. They, their children, and even though they, they had spouses, but their children were saved along with the parents and the ark that God wanted Noah to provide. So that's, that's one good example. Um, number two would be Passover. I wrote some of these down. Number two would be Passover. Okay, And, and remember the household salvation. Remember? Um, and so God said, you know, there's a lamb to be slain and, and everybody in that house, and I'm sure, and it's less that for your children. Make sure there's enough meat for everybody in the house, counting the children. So those children who who could not believe, didn't understand what was going on. They were saved from the death angel. The, the Passover would bless them even though they didn't understand. That would be another good example of children, little ones being called up to meet the Lord in the air. Um, in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, when when uh, Paul's talking about, uh, this is pretty interesting, when Paul's talking about godly husbands and wives, I'm sorry, about an, uh, a godly wife, marrying an ungodly husband. It talks about the, the, uh, the spouse that, that is saved. I'm sorry, I'm making this a long story. 1 Corinthians 7, that the spouse that is saved sanctifies the home. And what it's saying is, is at least the person that's saved, if you stay married to the unsaved, you bring the gospel to the house. But it also says the offspring of that covenant are holy. It doesn't say they're saved. It says they're holy. I mean, they have to be born again when they get to the age. But there's another example that God considers the offspring of that household before the age of accountability, if you don't mind me using that. God considers them holy. You, you make your children holy. I love that. That's, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So those are just two or three examples. There's about ten more that tell us that, yes, God, God seems to be that if he rap, when he raptures the church, the children that are before the age of accountability will be caught to meet the Lord in the air with with the parents. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome to think about? That God would God has taken care of that. He hasn't answered all these questions. But now your Bibles are open to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And let's pick up at verse. Uh, let's pick up at verse 12. Remember we dealt. This is several weeks ago. I'm not going to go over them. But we dealt the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first four seals. Remember. Chapter 5, there's nobody that was worthy to open the, the seal. And, but then the lamb, uh, I'll tell you what, flip back to chapter 5 since we just finished Easter. 
Go back to Revelation 5 and look at verse 6. It says, in between the throne and, and the, this is where they're trying to find who's worthy to open this, this title deed. Remember, it's a title deed. And, and I showed you some passages in the Old Testament about the Jeremiah and, and about burying that deed and all that. It's a good example of that. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders who represent the church, by the way, I saw a lamb. Look what it says. A lamb standing. Now, if a lamb is standing, you can assume or you make the assumption that this lamb is alive, right? As though it had been slain. It's a lamb of sacrifice, but it's alive. Do you remember what John the Baptist called Jesus? Matter of fact, he did this twice in the course of about a week. What did G John the Baptist, who introduced Jesus, he was a forerunner, what did he call Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did that twice. So this Lamb standing is Christ crucified. It's, it's, a, it's what John sees is a picture or a revelation of the, of the resurrected Christ. And of course, if you read, if you go back and read Revelation 5, that's, you know, that's where Christ is worthy to, to open the, the deed. He, he's the owner of the, the world and the universe and he's the Lord of history, and that's what we're fixing to see. Now back to chapter 6. So he opened the sixth seal, and there's, there's seven seals. This is the sixth. The first four were the four horsemen. If you ever hear somebody talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they appear in chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. You have the four horsemen, and, and so that's why they're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're at the sixth seal, chapter, chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened... The sixth seal. I look and behold, there was a great earthquake. I had given you that word. Uh, I just love God's word. And I was listening to John MacArthur, and they were asking John MacArthur the other day. It was one of these conferences, and they were asking him, you know, John MacArthur's my hero. And I'm not the only one that, that thinks his study Bible's the best out there. I mean, I. I've listened to other preachers uh, who believe his study Bible. And so when we promote study Bibles, we promote the MacArthur study Bible. That's my favorite. But they were asking him, what does he do when he studies a passage? Now, I'm not saying I'm as smart as John MacArthur. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I, I, but I never really heard him say this. But he said, what I do is the passage I'm dealing with, I sit down with a spiral notebook. That's me. You can go to my office right now and half my office is nothing but spiral notebooks. And he says, I go back to the original language and, and I translate and make sure what I'm reading, I know that's what it's saying. And he says, I start taking notes and then I go to the commentaries. And you know, folks, as, as feeble as I am, that's what I do. But and it reminds me because of what how this word appears, this megos seismograph, you know, it's it's the Greek word megas seismograph, a great earthquake. You know, when we English word seismology, this the study of earth, you know, the, the strength of earthquakes. Well, here it says, a great earthquake, and the sun was black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Tell us what time of the month it is, the full moon. <clears throat> became like blood. 
And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So you have these, these uh, meteors, whatever you want to say, are falling to the, to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And I, I did mention two things, even though it was three weeks ago, I do remember this. I mentioned the rolling up like a scroll. I mentioned those blinds, those old blinds we used to use. And if you did the wrong thing, it'd just fly up. And you know what I'm talking about. Roll up like a scroll. It says the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And of course, they're, I mean, they're rolling a scroll. By the way, do you know like the Gospel of Luke, the the scroll for the Gospel of Luke would have been 24 feet long. Uh, scholars tell us this based on the amount of print that could go on a sheet, a papyrus sheet, the scrolls. And, you know, so th this was a, anything that, these books were long scrolls. Uh, so many of them were 10, 12, 16, 18 feet long. So it's saying it's rolled up like a scroll. The sky was rolled up like a, like a scroll. Uh, says the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place and this would make an assumption that there would be uh, tsunamis. So if islands, I mean there's been earthquakes from that great one and, and so there's more than one tsunami and, and uh, this is why Luke says in Luke 21 that people, literally it says they die, their heart stops from fear of the waves roaring. So there's so much uh, turmoil in the seas that people will just fall dead from fear. Interesting thing. It says, uh, an island was removed from its place and then the kings of the earth. Folks, these are people that are here because they didn't get raptured. Are you with me? This is not for saved people. I'm fixing to show you that right here in, in uh, Revelation 6. But this is for people that are going to enter the tribulation. This is the sixth seal, and there are three sets of judgments. There's seal judgments, there are trumpet judgments, and there's bowl judgments. And there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and there's seven bowl judgments. And when you get to the seventh seal, contained in the seventh seal are the seven trumpets. Contained in the seventh trumpet, we're going to get there two or three years from now, in the seventh the seventh trumpet, in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowl judgments. Folks, this is the first, well, after the four horsemen, this is the, the next, the, the second great judgment. This is the sixth, the seal. There's 21 judgments. This is number six. Said, and so, so every island was moved out of its place. Though it says, then the kings of the earth. And we stopped right here, I think, two or three weeks ago. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. If you want to know a little bit of Old Testament history, this is also true uh, when, when Joshua entered Jericho. You know the song when the Lord told Joshua to go to Jericho and to march seven times around? And you know, that's the command of how they defeated uh, Jericho. Um, that's the first place when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. 
was, was, was defeating Jericho. Uh, even in that judgment, uh, you know, for seven days they walked around, but one of the things the, the, the leaders did in Jericho is they hid in the, in the caves when God brought judgment on that city. But anyway, um, so they hid themselves. It says, so they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Look what it says they do. So they're calling to the mountains and the rocks. Look what they say. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. God the Father is seated and the Lamb is the Son of God. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath. So they think about the holiness of God and the judgment of Christ. So the wrath, are you looking at your Bibles? Because the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, that God has not appointed us unto wrath. Well, they, this is the tribulation. The wrath starts the first part of the tribulation. Some people will say the wrath doesn't start till the second half of the tribulation, so some, maybe the rapture is after the middle part of the tribulation, after the abomination of desolation. Well, this says the, tri the wrath begins at the first part of the tribulation. So if wrath happens at the first part of the tribulation and the Bible says you and I are not appointed unto wrath, then the rapture has to happen before the wrath and the wrath is at the first, so the rapture happens before the tribulation. Does that not make sense to you? Amen? You can say amen. I'm going to preach an hour whether you say amen or not. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So, so, it's, so it says they know the wrath of the Lamb. What was it? From the wrath of the Lamb. Now, don't ask me how people of the world know and see this. Somehow God reveals this to them. Uh, they seem to know that, that the judgments are coming, these, these, these sealed judgments and the other judgments are going to be coming from the God of heaven. They somehow realize that. They also are going to realize that there's another, there's some kind of, of uh, not a building, but some kind of entity, or not an entity, some kind of structure. That's a better way. It also seems they perceive that there is some kind of structure up there that seems to be making its way down, which, which is the New Jerusalem. And they make reference to that. So, there's just, so they see, they see the wrath. They, they know what's going on. And they hide in these caves. Now, I, I don't know how accurate this is. I did do a little bit of study. And I've mentioned the dumbs, the deep underground military bases. And there are people, and, and, and if you've been in the military, you know that, that we have lots of, you would know that there's several underground military bases. There are some in Alabama. Some are huge. I was, did a little research, and in America, if this person was right, there's a hundred, now some of these are cities under the ground. I, I'm not making that up. You, you can do, go study that for yourself. But there's 140 military installations that are underground. 140. Now, some are larger than others, but many of those, like there's one up in the Smoky Mountains where there's highways that run through them. And, and you know, they have hospitals underground. I mean, they're not staffed yet. But they're, so they're, all these preparations have been made. Of course, obviously, you're thinking about nuclear. I mean, a lot of this was done in nuclear threats and all that. So they've done all this. Well, there's, so what I'm saying is when, when this comes about, 
You know, when John wrote this, I mean, there were a lot of caves, but they weren't developed into cities. They were a lot of cave dwellers. That's where a lot of them found shelter. I mean, that's true. Some of the best artwork in the world is in caves to this day, where, where they would live in caves and do artwork. But nothing compared to what's there. So there will be in, in the world, if there's 140 in America, obviously other countries have done the same thing, that there will be lots of people running from the judgments of God thinking that they can hide from God's judgment by getting in, in somehow underground. And so they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. Folks, one day we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, those of us that are saved. Folks, there's a judgment coming for everybody. For unsaved people, it's the great white throne judgment. They're going to approach the holiness of God without a sub. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine a sinner living 70 or 80 years on the face of this earth, storing up the wrath of God according to Romans 3, the wrath of God stacking up, stacking up, stacking up, and then that individual unsaved standing before a holy God. Can you imagine coming before that throne? Well, these people here, when these judgments begin to fall, they understand that there's a righteous God bringing judgment upon the world. But folks, the Bible says, and we know this now, the Bible says even though these things happen, we'll read it later on, not today, but later on, they still will not repent that all these people will continue to reject the Lord Jesus, reject the gospel, and will be defiant on the God that's bringing judgments upon the earth. And that's true today. There, there are people that have passed through here that have heard the gospel, that have been convicted by the gospel, but were unwilling to repent of their sins and surrender their will to Christ. And at that moment, what they're doing is they're putting their fist in the face of God. The Bible calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But they're saying to God, I, you know, I'm not going to repent. And so they're defiant. So verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So you have the wrath that's coming from the Father and the wrath that's coming from the Son. The day of the wrath has come. And then they ask this interesting question, Who in the world can stand? There's nobody going to stand under God's wrath. So if you're here today and you've been saved, by the grace of Christ, aren't you glad that those six hours that Christ stayed on the cross 2,000 years ago, aren't you grateful that He bore your guilt and your sin and the punishment for it? Amen? Man, that's that, and that's why we call it salvation. We're saved from our sin. He paid the redemptive price for our sins. But without that salvation, people are going to be... And, and on this earth, God's going to begin to pour out His judgment, not just on individuals, on the earth, uh, creation, it knows this. Somehow in Romans 8, it tells us that creation is aware that it has been cursed and that it's under God's judgment too. And it can't wait for Christ to come and, and restore uh, peace upon this earth and, and go back to the days of, of the Garden of Eden. But, but So it's going to be so bad. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Uh, well, let's show it to you. Go to, uh, go to Matthew 24, okay? So hold your finger here. We're going to come back here uh, at some point, but go to Matthew chapter 24. Can you believe it's almost 10, 15? Isn't that amazing? 
that's, that's really a sad state of affairs for you. I can tell you. Matthew, I, I should have marked it. Matthew 24. Now this 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 is profound. Matthew chapter twenty four. Uh, look at verse. Uh, let's put it in the context. Verse thirty two. Okay, Matthew twenty four. Thirty two. Here's a great sign. You know, Matthew twenty four is when Jesus they ask the question. The, the disciples asked Jesus about the end of the age. And so Jesus, get, you can start at verse 3. Start, gives them, he gives them the answers to what is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And he gives them the answer. And of course, it's very Jewish. You know, because God saves the church. The church is his bride. Israel's not his bride. He set, he set Israel aside. And then he's going to come back and redeem Israel. And one of the things the tribulation does, besides God pouring out His wrath on the earth, is He's bringing, he's bringing the Jews to repentance. That's one of the other things that happens during the tribulation. We'll get there in just a minute, and I'll show you one of the major reasons why we know it bring, He brings the Jews to repentance. But look at Matthew chapter 20. Let's pick up at verse 32. Here's one of the great signs. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you could tell the time of the year by the leaves on the fig tree. Uh, so also, when you see all these things, you know that it is near. It is, it is, it is at, at the very gates. And we say that the greatest fig tree budding, you know, the leaves budding on a fig tree, the greatest sign of a fig tree budding prophetically was when Israel became a nation in, in 1947 or 1948 when it got its, its, uh, its identity back in, in really in the, in the course of a day. And so when, when Israel became a nation again, this was, so the fig tree's budding. Israel, Israel is the focus of all prophecy. And so when it, when it became a nation again, then, then you can see that it was a fig tree budding. 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until... All these things, all these things take place. He's not talking about the generation that was alive then, but the generation that's alive that begins to see these signs. Okay, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. By the way, the word of God's eternal. I mean, it's it, we're going to have it in heaven. And now, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. And this is what Jesus says. You with me? For as were, so I'm making this reference to how bad it's going to be, even though we just read the sixth seal judgment, and we've got, you know, a bunch more ahead of us, uh, 15 more to read. This is what Jesus says those days are going to be like. For as were the days of Noah. Now, he doesn't say it might be. There's, there's no am, ambiguity here. Uh, it's not possible it's going to happen. This is, the, the, we call it an, an indicative. It, for as were the days of Noah. So if we're familiar with the days of Noah, what eventually happened in the days of Noah? What's it known for? The flood. Judgment. Okay, Worldwide judgment. By the way, 
it's always been interesting to me, and, and I know I'm going to run out of time, but I, I need to say this. Folks, this is why the doctrine of creation is critical to me. This is why the church at Laodicea, the seventh church that Jesus speaks to, the judgments, the heavens, when the, when the angels celebrate salvation and the church celebrates salvation when they sing, one of the things we sing about up there is God being the creator of all things. Folks, here's the issue. If God created all this out of nothing, and he did, he, and he flooded the world in judgment, the world in judgment, that same God that did that can catch believers up in the air and translate them out of the grave. He can come back and judge the world. He can do those things because the, he's the creator. And if he's the creator, then we're all just creatures. He's God and we're man. So, folks, it's going to happen. So when you study the Bible, you think about him being creator. Him being creator affirms the fact that he's in control of all of it. And if God flooded the world like the Bible says he did, and he did, the world, then all these other things he says he's going to do, he can do. And he's going to do it because he promised to do it. Well, we keep reading. So, <clears throat> not that, so as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to let you look these verses up. Let me read them to you. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, I'm going to read several. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And, of course, we know that, <clears throat> that fallen angels had relations with earthly women, and they created monsters. The Bible calls them Nephilim. Uh, they were, they were not all human. They were not all angel. They were half of each, and they were giants, and they were wicked. They were cannibals. They were perverts, and they perverted the, the seed of man. They perverted the genetics of man. You can read that. That's what the Bible says. And so it seems as if the Bible saying Jesus is what he's saying is true, then one of the things that's going to be happening in the last days is a revival of demonic activity and ungodly activity. You know, it says in Genesis 6, 5, that every thought, every intent of everybody on the earth was wicked continually. Everybody. So God had to wipe them off the face of the earth and he saved one family. And by the way, you may think I'm crazy, but if you study the Bible, the animals that came to the ark, you know, two of each kind, male and female, because they're going to reproduce, seven of the, of the ones they're going to sacrifice, right? Seven. Seven of several. God brought them to the ark. They didn't have to go get them. God brought them. There's another, I think why he did that was some of the, some of the animals had been fooled with. Because the Bible mentions like centaurs, half animal and half person, half. So there, and history, history says that some of that happened too. So God had to make sure the animals were clean too. Just something to think about. Matthew 24, so Luke 17, 21 says, They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That's what it's going to be in the rapture. As the world sees it, life is going to be normal. 
and then judgment's going to come. Well, he's going to take the church, and then judgment's going to come. By the way, what starts the, what starts the tribulation? Now, don't, don't, don't say it out loud because you may be wrong. I'll answer it, okay? But you, you, immediately your thoughts are going to be, you, you know the most of you do know the answer because I've said this several times. What starts the tribulation? And it is not the rapture. What starts the tribulation? The seven-year agreement made between the Antichrist and Israel, right? This covenant that is made, this peace treaty that the Antichrist, who replaces, who's a, a replaced Jesus, and, and he leads the world, uh, uh, a ten-nation conglomerate of worldwide, worldwide order, one world government, to make a covenant with Israel that they're going to have peace for seven years. That's, that begins the tribulation. That marks the beginning of seven years. And so it's from there, three and a half years, where he breaks the covenant which, and, and performs something called the abomination of desolation. We move on. 1 Peter 3.20 says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. If he did not spare the ancient world, this is 2 Peter 2, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, then he and, and when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and that verse keeps on saying, is he not going to hold in judgment people that are in sin now? It says, by faith Noah, Hebrews 11, by faith Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his family, and by this he condemned the world. So Noah preparing the ark for the saving of his family did, the, did, did something else. He condemned the world. By faith, he prepared the ark and was saved. But at the same time, that faith led to the judgment of the world. Millions of people died. And everything with breath in their nostrils died. Now, hold, your, hold yourself here. Well, you can leave Matthew 24. Go to, uh, I have to go here. Go to 2 Peter. I, I'm, there's no way I'm going to finish. I'm just going to give up trying to finish, okay? So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And let's read what this passage says about the days of Noah. 2 Peter 2. And let's look at verse uh, 2 Peter 2. Verse, uh, I'm sorry. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. But I still, we're still going back to Revelation 7 before we finish, okay? So keep your finger there. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, a third of the angels fell, right? It's what we learn in Ezekiel 28. We also learn that in uh, Revelation 12. A third of the angels, when Satan fell, when Satan rebelled and was cast out, the original rebellion, a third of the angels fell with him. He took a, and there are thousands upon thousands upon myriads of thousands of angels and so there's thousands and thousands and myriads of thousands of fallen angels. So when he, so he fell, and these are the angels. So okay, so you have the fallen angels, and they're still active. But but there's a group of angels that did something very 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 wicked. So when he says in chapter two verse four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sin, well all of them sin. But he's talking about a specific sin, a specific wicked sin. Well, he's talking about the angels that did, that did the consorting with women. That's, what he's that's who he's talking about. So if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, 
but he cast them into hell and he committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That, that is a very insightful passage. We don't have to go into it, but, but if you believe the Bible, you know what Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was. It's major sin. You know that because the angels that God sent there, uh, they even tried to defile those, those men of that city, tried to defile those angels, men. They always show up as men, masculine. You, so you know the sin, you know the perversion. And he says it makes them an example. Uh, the idea of a, a living placard that, so we can never forget the consequence of that sin. Okay, It's a big deal. So making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, that's a picture of the rapture, by the way, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Can you just not watch the news and get sick at your stomach? And I'm, listen, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know that. I'm, I'm a wicked sinner saved by grace. But if this world makes me sick at my stomach, the wickedness and the vileness that's in this world, can you imagine a holy God letting loose in His retribution? It's godly retribution. But when he, that's why the last seven are called bowls, when he pours out his final stages of wrath, undiluted, can you imagine the judgment on man? So he says, so he was, verse 9, then the tormenting, you know, Lot was struggling with the weakness. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Can I ask you a question? Are, is anybody going to get away with any sin? See, this is why the Bible says we're not the judge, right? God's the judge. And so people that live in anarchy and vileness and unrighteousness and rebellion and, uh, by the way, one of the greatest sins is no fear. You know, Noah... I'm sorry, Adam sinned and he was afraid. That's what it says. One of the last statements about man's rebellion in the book of Romans is there's no fear of God among them. No, Think about our, our culture. Is there any fear of God? Well, folks, there should be. There's not, but there should be. But there's coming. So God knows how to keep everybody. Uh, he, they're not going to get away with it. That's the whole point. They're not going to get away with it. So, folks, if you're here today, let me just say this as an evangelist. If you're here today and you're trusting on anything other than the shed blood of Christ, you're being duped. 
You may be nice. You may be a member of the Red Cross. You may be a great person. But that's compared to us. The Bible says you're a wicked sinner and you need a redeemer. And right now, if you're here and you're unsaved, let's say you're 30 years old. You have stored up 30 years of wickedness. And one day you're going to stand before God the Father and, and God the Son. And you're going to give an account. So God knows how to rescue the, the godly from their trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And look what he says in verse 10, if you turn there. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and they despise authority. So he mentions vile, defiling passions. You know what he's referring to because he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. What sin is he mentioning? Say it out loud. Homosexuality. And he mentions despising authority. So these are just, well, I'll tell you what, since we're here, go to Jude. Just take, take another right. Go past all the Johns. Just go there. We're, I got one more minute. I, I know this clock is probably off. Go to Jude. Right before Revelation, then you come to Jude. Go to the book of Jude. And then we are going to read two more verses, three more verses in Revelation. But I got to read this first. Go to Jude. Look at Jude. And I would say like Jude chapter 5. But if you're looking, you know there's not but one chapter. But look at Jude 1. We'll look at verse uh, 5. <clears throat> now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, by the way, Jude's like James. He's a half-brother of Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, not all of them did this. Uh, they did it, uh, if you read in the Old Testament, they did it during the days of Jared, you know, one of the fathers, the patriarchs. It says, um, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5. But left their proper dwelling. He, the Lord, Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Going on. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality by one of the great signs of the end of the age is when homosexuality becomes normal, okay? And likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to judge the world. But one of the great signs of that day is going to be when homosexuality is normalized. That Later on, Jesus calls them birth pains in Matthew 24. One of the birth pains of signs of the rapture is, or signs of His coming is the normal, normalization of homosexuality. Well, we've got to finish. I told you we would. So go to Revelation 7. This is an awesome thing to think about. 
Let me just read this and I'll close, okay? Now, right here in the midst of the sixth seal, the sixth seal judgment, we see these witnesses that show up. They're called 144,000 witnesses. Uh, there's a group of people, a, a, a cult, that claim that this is them. Walter, what are they called? Thank you. They're called Jehovah's Witnesses. And they claim that this is them, that they're the 144,000. Well, the first question you need to ask somebody that says that is what tribe of Israel are they from? Because these are tribes of Israel, right? Now, somehow, some way, even though the world is going to be under the judgment of God, right? You with me? And this, this is, we haven't seen anything yet. But God is unloosening His judgment. No time in that seven years of judgment will the world ever be without a witness of the gospel. Chapter 7 reminds us of that. So let me read it and we'll close. Part of it. It says, After this, so after that sixth seal, I saw four angels standing at the four corners. And by the way, just a little note. It all, this is common. You'll find this. After the sixth judgment, whether it's seal, trumpet, or bowl, there's always uh, like a cookie break, like a, we're going to take five minutes. or So there's always a break between the sixth judgment of the seal, trumpet, and bowls and the seventh. It's like there's a, we're going to take a nap before this big one comes. But anyway, so after this, so we haven't got to the seventh yet. So then, so he's mentioning this, right? After I, this, I, after this, after the sixth, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. But no, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. By the way, this is part of the seventh, the seventh seal. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. So he, he, he ascended with the sun. With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. So there's angels that are fixing to do some more damage to the earth and to the sea. And this is what the angel that came up with the sun said. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now what's going to happen to people that are devoted to the Antichrist? They're going to have to take a mark. And that mark's going to be where? On their forehead or on their hand. These are witnesses for God. These are preachers that are going to preach during the tribulation. There's going to be 144,000 of them, and they're all going to be Jewish. They're going to be Jews. Keep reading. So do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed, with every tribe and sons of Israel. And then he lists the twelve, all, all tribes and all twelve. The one you'll find missing, the, the tribe, is the tribe of Dan. Because it was the first to be, to be pagan. Folks, these 144,000 men, they're men. I will, we'll watch them next week. We'll pick up here. They will witness during the entire scope of the tribulation period. They cannot be killed. Now, I don't know how that happens, but they're, because at the end of the tribulation on Mount Zion, Israel, on Jerusalem, guess how many witnesses are there? 144,000. That's in chapter 14.
So these 144,000 witnesses preached the gospel. Now let me just say this. During the tribulation. There are so many people saved in the tribulation that they can't be numbered. We're going to, we'll read that later on. Some scholars, I was listening to two guys, I heard them, well, I read, they said this. They believe there'll be as many, if not more people saved in those seven years as there will be has been saved, church age, in the last 2,000 years. Even though they will die for their faith, there is going to be a massive revival during the tribulation. But folks, let me say one thing. If you're here today and you think you can play games with God, let me give you a little hint. The Bible says you can't really play a big game with Him because He knows your mind and your heart. But number two, if you take the mark of the beast, you are doomed to hell. I don't care if you think you're... And it's, not, it's not your credit card. It's not a PIN number. It's the mark of the beast. It's his number. It's his identity. And you're going to take it in loyalty to him. That mark condemns you to hell. So if you're left behind, do not take the mark. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And we're going to pray and be dismissed, but with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, folks, I cannot leave without just asking you this question. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Are you saved? If you, if you were, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if you were to hold the hand of the people on either side of you and they were to look you in the eyeball and say, Are you saved? Have you been born again? What is that answer? Some of you, it's, it's a relative, it's a husband, a wife, a child, a parent. Folks, they know. They know how you live. I'm asking you, have you been saved? Well, folks, without Christ, the judgments that we're reading about are going to fall upon you. And even if you go die before the tribulation, the Bible says you're going to die. And you're going to lift up your eyes being in hell, in torment. Folks, without Christ, there's condemnation and there's judgment. I beg you to consider the claims of Christ on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that we have a revelation. We we know the future. And Father, as real as the resurrection of Christ from the grave was, as real as the events of, of Christ's death on a cross, as, as little as those are, these events are going to take place. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is our yes and amen. And He said these days are coming. So, Father, if we're saved, for those of us that know you, I pray that we will be witnesses. We'll be concerned about the souls of men and women. And, Father, we would be concerned about living for the sake of your name, that we will live to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we'll love your church. We'll love the body of believers that you purchased with your blood. 
Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. Dismiss us now. May we be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.